What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You have a cow. First cow in the territory. Same place for cows. There's no place for a white man either. So, turns out, there really is a cow in Kelly Reichert's first cow. You didn't think there would be? Well, I thought maybe it was some sort of old-timey expression, something Uh, like that. (laughs) This week on the show, we have a review of First Cow, which is currently playing in limited release, and some thoughts on Pixar's latest, Onward. All that and more. What would First Cow even mean as an expression? I don't know. Pioneer slang? Something like that. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. How could COVID-19 possibly affect a podcast, you ask? Well, we were supposed to have an interview with First Cow director Kelly Reichert this week, but that's not happening. Her travel plans have changed, as many yeah. travel plans have changed. And you'll just have to settle for episode 608 in our archive if you want to hear a prior conversation I had with Kelly Reichert over the phone about another very good film from her, Certain Women. And it's a good interview. I revisited that in preparation, Thanks. hoping to talk to her myself. You guys had a good conversation. So, yeah, that'll that'll have to do for yeah. this time. This time I was looking forward to having her in studio and talking about First Cow. Alas, we will have to settle just for our thoughts on the movie. We both also did catch up with Pixar's Onward over the weekend. Did you bring the kids as I brought the kids? You know, the kids have not seen this one yet. I'm actually, I saw it at a screening a couple weeks okay. ago. So they do. They're curious. So we might go see it again. We will talk about that briefly and Film Spotting Madness Best of the 2010s continues with the Sweet 16 revealed. Last week, we wrapped up our top 20 of the 2010s countdown. Josh, do you recall what my number one film of the decade was? Yes, it was Inside Lewin Davis. Apparently, I wasn't very convincing in my praise for that Coen Brothers film because we're going to find out whether or not it made it out of the second round of Film Spotting Madness. It doesn't look good. Nothing ever looked good for Lewin Davis. Life has always been a little bit miserable. And this is going to make him win. Yeah, this is going to make him even more of a misanthrope. This is really shocking. I mean, with the Coen brothers and the Kempinar bump. I know. I mean, my prediction bracket took a hit. Yeah, mine too. All that later in the show. A while back, I predicted that First Kyle would be my favorite movie of 2019. That didn't happen because it wasn't released. We'll discuss where we both land on Kelly Reichert's period drama now that it's finally here. Good Lord, give me another. I'll give you six ingots for that last one. I taste London in this game. We have to take what we can when the taking is good. Seems dangerous. So is anything worth doing? A royal cow. Until she barely produces a thing. Some people can't imagine being stolen from. Let's hope he's one of those. We got a window here, Cookie. History isn't here yet. It's coming, but maybe this time we can take it on our own terms. 
Adam, if I was a good friend and podcast partner, I would have made some oily cakes and brought them with me today. No kidding. Unfortunately, all I have to offer is this setup for our review of Kelly Reichert's First Cow, in which a cook slash baker in early 19th century Oregon teams up with a Chinese immigrant to sell the donut-like specialties at a trading post on the edge of the wilderness. Business booms for Cookie and King Lou, played by John Magaro and Orion Lee, but there's a catch. The two men can only make the delicacy by stealing milk at night from the cow of the outpost's governor, the first and only cow in the territory. First Cow is an intimately told tale, friendship as captured by gentle gestures in front of crackling fires. But as that plot summary suggests, it can also be read as a wider metaphor. Is the movie a critique of colonialism and manifest destiny? Does it have more contemporary resonance in terms of economic theory? Should we read these as capitalism cakes in some way? Mm. Or as you suggested, Adam, not long after we came back from our screening of the movie a week or two ago, should First Cow be read in a simpler way, as a parable? Now, speaking of that screening, it was really not fair that they showed us this movie about 11 a.m. I was going to say that. I was starving anyway. Oh, my goodness. My stomach started grumbling like crazy. We're creeping up on dinner time right about now, so there may be a few stomach grumbles on this recording. I do want to know, did First Cow satisfy your appetite for another Kelly Reichert period piece set in Oregon Territory? Her other one, Meek's Cutoff, made both of our top 20 films of the 2010s. More specifically, how was it satisfying for you as a parable, Adam? What do those oily cakes mean? Yeah, well, I'll take more Kelly Reichert wherever she might be shooting. I do love that you bring up the oily cakes, though, because despite the fact that it was around lunchtime and we were both hungry at that screening, I think it really speaks to the attention to detail in this film and the authenticity of it, that you are watching those being prepared and you are watching those being sold and gobbled up. And all you can think is, I would do anything for one of those Mm -hmm. right now. The same way all of those people are reacting, that's how I was reacting. You could almost smell them as they were being made. There's an element of parable right away to this film in the main character, John Magaro, called Cookie, as he encounters the Orion Lee character, King Lou, where he's naked, he's shivering out in the forest, he's on the run, and he's clearly desperate, and Cookie helps him. And then that kindness is returned by King Lou when they encounter each other later in the film. That all feels like the stuff of parable to me. But as you get deeper into the film, and you mentioned capitalism cakes, the story of these two men and their business venture does take on more of an allegorical resonance. I'd say you realize that Reichert is critically, but not polemically, saying something about the nature of capitalism, the so-called American dream, this whole idea of being self-made men, which they are striving for. I would say the King Luke character striving at least more vocally or more explicitly for it. But this critique comes in this idea Reichert explores that despite your intentions and really maybe despite your product even, there's almost no way to avoid exploitation Mm. of someone of some group or something in this case. And at best, you're going to compromise your principles. At worst, you might succumb to some kind of corrupting spirit. But where it did really click for me as a parable, Josh, this idea, as you said, a simple, small story, but imparting a large moral lesson. And I go back to my junior year of college. I'll give my bona fides here. My favorite class, one of my favorite classes in college was advanced biblical studies. It was just 
me and two other students and the professor who was also the chaplain at the school. And it was devoted entirely to the parables of Jesus. And as I recall from that class, there's usually some kind of twist to the story. There's an element of surprise. There's a subversion of expectations. And early on in this film, and here I'm going to be very careful because I do not want to spoil anything, partly because I'm not a monster, mainly because I really want people to see this film. But early on in their success, we encounter a character. And it really is fair to say we encounter a character because I'm not even sure our main characters take note of him, but we as viewers do because Reichert trains her camera right on him. And there's a moment that happens between him and a couple of the other characters, an exchange that should take place, I'll just say, and it doesn't. And you see the disappointment and it registers again because of the way Riker shoots it. But in that moment, I was pretty sure that character was going to be completely inconsequential to the plot. And for the most part, that's true, except we do meet him again later in the movie. You're looking kind of confused. No, it's been I, a while since we've no, seen I, it. So I know what, who do you know where I'm now. going? I just clicked. Yep. And and that's the part for me, amidst everything else we're saying that makes the film feel like a parable, that's the one for me where you almost say, in hindsight, had that moment played out differently, mm. would the future play out differently? Yeah. The future that we then see enacted, might that have been different if some people had just acted with more kindness to this yeah. person in yeah. that moment? And that's where you really do tap into... Reichert's kind of method of storytelling. Yeah. So in, in a sense, it turns the way you can see it likely going, but it also sort of turns on a dime right. on a very small thing. Um, so I do think that's true. I think you're also right to bring up this idea of exploitation. I think about two different characters, I think, describe the Oregon Territory at two different points of the film. One uses it uses this, a land of abundance. And then I think someone else describes it as a land of riches. Mm -hmm. And nearly everyone we see in the movie except for those, the indigenous people who we get fleeting glimpses of, but mostly it's white Europeans. Nearly everyone here has come to exploit that. And in the process, they end up exploiting each other, right? Including as well, the natural world and the people who are there. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question, you know, and this goes back to the, is this a critique or is this a parable? For me, is that exploitation built into the system or is it part of human nature? And I think for me, what was really interesting about First Cow is that it was not polemical at all, as you say. Um, and going back to the biblical parables, they too can be read in many different ways. And you can come away with many different interpretations yeah, of them. And you can I think, read them as critiques. Yes. And I think the same thing could be true here. I, mm -hmm. I think this is, um, you know, there is a reading of this film that's pro-capitalist. <laughs> you know, uh, these bootstrap guys want to build their own empire. Mm -hmm. um, there's a reading of this that is also socialist. Well, who, who owns all the materials exactly. that are needed for them to build this legit business. Mm -hmm. um, they're shady capitalists. They are stealing, after all. So that's what kind of makes me zoom out and say, this is a really interesting parable of greed, just the way sure. it evidences itself in different people who are in different social positions um, and have different opportunities. And I just think it's really interesting that way. I, th mm -hmm. I think there are many layers to a movie that has very little dialogue, is incredibly patient and not does not give into any sort of speechifying. You're right. The reason those oily cakes are so appealing is because we spend time with them making them. Mm -hmm. And anyone and even who's talking about the making talking of them. about the ingredients, anyone who's who's 
made a meal that took time and a lot of care and effort knows it tastes so much better yeah. <laughs> than something that was just dropped in front of you, right? And that's what Reichert does here. She not only does that with the oily cakes, she does that with this entire world that is centuries ago um, with people who live in completely different ways by emphasizing things like the squelching of the mud around this fort, the fires I mentioned, there's a squealing pig um, that shows up once mm-hmm. or twice and becomes part of the ambient soundtrack. It's the same sort of stuff. I remember you talking about the squeaky wheels and Meek's cutoff of the wagons. Um, it's foregrounding that sort of stuff that builds this world so convincingly and puts us right there. Yeah, and you said it's a parable of greed, but what makes the story so compelling is that our two main characters, our two friends, and of course, like a lot of Reichert films, it's first and foremost, maybe even a story of friendship more than even whatever it might be saying about capitalism and greed, but they're not greedy. There's nothing inherently greedy about them. There is something in them that wants to strive for more and wants to make money, but I think it's about something more. In the case of Cookie, he is an artist. He he does perceive himself as someone who wants to create. He wants to put time and care and effort into these, and he wants to serve his audience, if you will, right? He wants to make them just a little bit sweeter. He thinks that's going to appeal to these people a little bit more. And you've got in King Lou someone who more than just trying to amass riches wants to establish himself. He wants yes. to carve his own path. And that's the key line for me. Yes, there's lots of talk about the land being this land of abundance and land of riches. But really, the line of the film is one he says to Cookie, which is history hasn't gotten here yet. Mm-hmm. And It's such a great line. I don't know if Reichert wrote it or it was in the original material based on the John Raymond book. They've worked together on some other screenplays and they work together on this one. But for him, he loves this territory because he's coming from a place in China that's defined by family heritage and what village you're born into and this culture that's been established for centuries that – If you're going to be there, you sort of have to fall in line with, right? And he gets to come over to America, and it's just all about opportunity. It's all about him being, in theory, once you take, of course, race and you take all these other things out of it, which you can't take out of it. But you can at least, in theory, begin to explore and follow that dream. And he's on the right path. Yeah, the movie pays attention to both the possibility of that dream and the limits on it because he is not white, which gives Cookie an advantage here. But this performance by Orion Lee, who I was unfamiliar with from before, is so interesting and really instructive for the film, I think, because this is a guy who's up against a lot. We meet him, as you said, completely desperate, on the run from something else. He's looked at askance in this fort by everyone else, but he has a serenity to him. Mm -hmm. And another line that he says at one point, uh, he mentions to Cookie how he's traveled all over, obviously has come very far. He says, uh, I believe different things in different places. And this is, it gives you this sense of this guy who is both in the middle of the story of his life, but somehow above it and observing it and recording it Hmm. too and learning along the way for his next challenge. And not being rigidly defined. No. Letting letting the space he's in. But he sees the opportunity for that to start happening now because this this plan is not just practical on the part of the two of them. For for King Lou, it's existential. It's a chance for him to set, to define who he is. He's going to become a businessman, and this is his opportunity. And that's why he convinces Cookie, who might not exactly have that sort of drive, to to take the risks that 
involve stealing mm-hmm. the milk over the cover of night. And I, I do like that performance, but I also love what John Magaro is doing okay. with Cookie. I mean, he's the early front runner for performance of the year. Okay. I love I mean, him. I love him that think, much in this movie. I think they're both great. I do um, think they're both great. Yeah. And what Magaro is doing here is bringing he, he's painting a picture of a guy who's almost too gentle for this world and in a sense he's bringing this traditionally feminine presence into a place there are very few women in this movie mm-hmm. so into a place that does not have that at all and has us kind of reorient our perception of about what does it mean to be feminine what does it mean to be masculine the first time we see cookie uh, he's with some fur trappers out in the wilderness, and these guys Very are always macho. threatening each other, wrestling in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a completely—he's gathering mushrooms. He's tending to the camp, handling all these domestic duties. Yep. And this continues throughout the movie, even when he meets King Lou, when he's introduced—when he's brought to the shack. King Lou's shack. I love how— He's told, make yourself easy. Right. Which you would so think, what does he do? Instead of like grabbing a thing of whiskey and chugging it, yeah. he starts sweeping he up. He picks up a broom, a makeshift Yeah, he picks broom. up a broom. He mm-hmm. shakes out the pelt that's served yep. as a rug. He brings in a bouquet of flowers. My favorite touch on this end is when he's in that makeshift saloon back at the fort and a scuffle breaks out and they want to take it outside. And for some reason, one of the guys involved in the scuffle is holding a baby, yep. a little a little baby carriage. He gives it to Cookie. Like, right. obviously, this is the, the one person who might watch my baby while I go kick this guy's ass. And it was just, again, like this sort of different perspective on what it means to be feminine. For sure. Whether you're a man or a woman. Yeah. I think that's a really great observation because I didn't put it as I watched it explicitly in those terms. I thought about it in the sense of their partnership. Just the fact that he immediately does feel so comfortable that he starts making it a home. Mm-hmm. Of course, then you're right. The logical progression from that is he does take on the more traditionally female role in that scenario. His name is Cookie. He's the one who's doing the cooking. He's the one who's doing the cleaning for the most part. And King Lou is the guy who is the businessman. He's mm-hmm. the one with the brain who is trying to direct kind of how this future business should grow for them. And I think that is a fascinating twist, having both those characters be men in this scenario for Riker to pull on us. Yeah. And I think it it does portray a friendship. I, I didn't get any hint of this being, you know, sexualized absolutely in any not. way, although they form a domestic mm-hmm. partnership. Absolutely. Yep. And I've said feminine before. I should also say masculine. I mean, what it really does is show us a different way to be masculine. Yeah. Not the in this cookie, world, not in this time and place. That would be accepted point. in this time and yes. place. No, absolutely. But it forms this domestic unit that is really beautiful mm-hmm. in, in each kind of serving each other, serving their life together in different ways that are both necessary. Yeah. And um, it's kind of what makes the suspense add up as you get a sense the longer they try to pull this scheme, it's the only cow in the territory. I mean, pretty right. soon someone's going to figure it out that this domestic Eden they've created is going to come crashing down. Yeah, I think most importantly in their roles, it's that it's who they are. They're being true to themselves yes. at all times, even if you take any traditional gender norms out of it. I do want to go back to Magaro real quick because I was that impressed with his performance. And he's someone I have seen before. Not sure I knew him by name. Definitely didn't recognize him here. And I think the big bushy beard has a lot to do with that. But just a little bit of background. Is he an actor you feel no, like he you're was familiar to me with? Too. Okay, so... 42 IMDb credits going back to 2005. Of course, that's including a lot of TV shows and other types of things. 
I saw him. We saw him in War Machine, the David Meshed film on Netflix. We saw him in The Big Short, and he also is in Carol. And those all came after the movie that introduced him to me, which was 2012's Not Fade Away, David Chase's movie, his first film post-Sopranos. And that's a film set back in the 1960s. Magaro plays Doug, the main character, who basically decides he's going to devote his energy full-time to rock and roll after the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And Chase has always described the movie as about one of the bands that didn't make it. And I think he's very good in that role. But again, He's kind of been lost to me ever since then, even though I've seen him in a few smaller roles here and there. And you watch him in this film, and there is just a kindness, I suppose. There's a grace to him. The best word I can come up with is a soulfulness to him. And he does it as subtly as Riker shoots the entire film. It's his ability to impart so much with a simple look. And in fact, the biggest acting I think he does in the entire film And this is how small and quiet the film is, that a moment where he looks up at the cow and smiles broadly, Mm -hmm. right? We just haven't seen that from him or really anybody else in this space. This is a hard life. He has a moment where he can finally smile in that way, and it really does disarm you. And the subtlety with which Magaro portrays Cookie here was really astonishing to me. It's a nice moment, and it also connects back to the exploitation idea because, yes, he's stealing the cow's milk, but he's the one you get a sense yeah. treats the cow the best. Right. He talks the to her. The cow might her, not mind. And <laughs> I don't. I think I think he's the cow's best friend. Yes. He, and at one point, the story is that the great shot, you know, there are no ostentatious shots. Well, there's one. Maybe we can get to. But there is a great shot of the cow arriving on that raft, just like serenely floating on the river, completely out of place. Right. Um, but, but just looking somehow serene still, um, using that word again, I think it's a quality of this movie. Um, but on the journey, there was also supposed to be a steer and I believe a calf. And there's a throwaway line that those two died, were lost along the way. And Cookie says something to the cow as he's milking her at night. I'm sorry to hear you lost. And it's another example of the kindness yeah. um, that you're talking about, that this animal, you know, animals are seen in this place as just crude material yeah. that he's Serving taking the time to form this sort of relationship. You mentioned the the subtlety of the acting and, and connected it to Reichert's filmmaking. We should probably spend a little time on that because, as I said, there aren't really showy shots here, but this goes back to how she shoots nature. And I think you got into this with her in your previous interview. Um, and she said something about no beauty shots on the set of certain women. Mm-hmm. They weren't going for that in Montana. Um, and there's something similar here. The camera is almost always in the weeds yep. in a way. We should mention she's using, once again, the 4-3 aspect ratio, so you're not getting these that wide... That she did on Meeks. Correct. That mm-hmm. You're not getting these wide landscape shots. And so it's nature is just kind of, you know, it's there. It's part of the life. It's part of the background. And yet she still gives it um, that authenticity of place and of time that is compelling. The ostentatious shot is the one, at one point, Cookie will just say he gets concussed. He's awakening from this and has a bleary point of view shot of him looking out the window of a cabin and sees an older Native American man doing some ceremonial movements slowly against these windswept trees. Mm -hmm. And with the bleariness and the framing of the window, it is like – it's incredibly – Showy, and I'm. I'd love to hear get <laughs> for your, Reichert for Reichert. Yeah, but yeah. I'd love to get your take on that. I in Meek's cutoff, I don't think it's a case of you know trying to exoticize 
the indigenous peoples there because she definitely has a deep respect for that element of this time mm-hmm. and place. We've seen that in Meek's Cutoff especially, but it does just kind of jump out. It seems like it's a vision that yes. drops in on Cookie. Yeah, yeah. And because of that, I thought it was effective. I think it is giving us the exact feeling that we're supposed to have in that moment as he is waking up and recovering and is in this kind of other state. And I think that it's important, too, to her that we do see in this small story that is mostly about these two friends, she does always make time for some of these characters on the periphery, including Native American characters, Mm -hmm. which would have been true to this time. And I think that gets back to the authenticity. For me, I just wanted to tie that four by three framing back to what I was saying about Magero and his performance, because I think they obviously go hand in hand. And if we do get a chance at some point to talk to Reichert, I'll ask her about this. If we ever talk to Magero, I'll ask him about this. But in basic terms, when you think about film acting, people always talk about the transition from stage to screen. And he's done a lot of stage stuff as well. And the obvious difference being that you have to be a lot smaller. The camera captures everything. It registers every little move. So less is more always on camera. Well, I suspect that Magero and Riker both also had to be aware that less is even more when it's a four by three frame, sure. right? Where now it's really emphasizing everything that's happening within that frame. And most of the time, it's Cookie's face. You get the sense sometimes of those tall trees behind them that that not as wide frame of course, does capture. But for the most part, it's these faces. And I think it's that stillness and that ability of Magaro to be so restrained within that four by three frame that's really the wonder of the performance. Yeah, that definitely um, helps focus our attention on him. And he's up to the task for sure. Another performance we should probably mention, one that I think was probably immediately recognizable, I think, for both of us is by Toby Jones, mm-hmm. who's the the governor slash the commander of the fort. I think he's basically in charge of this this region here and he's the owner of the cow as well so he shows up in a great you know you don't think of Riker's films as laugh out loud funny but the first time he gets in line for an oily cake you know not knowing that it's completely possible because of his cows is kind of a nice moment it is and then he also turns that when they visit his home he asks them to bake a different dish and bring it for an event at his home and the look on his face when King Lou enters the room and then dares to speak. Mm-hmm. It's he yep. just kind of Riker suddenly takes note of that. Takes note of that. And it's just, you know, it's an it's another little detail that's painting um what you have to believe is a very accurate portrait of this time and place. Yeah, I think in general how she dispenses information to us, what we need to see, what blanks she allows us to fill in, what blanks we need to fill in and what we can fill in as viewers, she just really inherently understands. And I want to mention, too, that there's a framing device, though. I'm not so sure it's a framing device if it's only at the beginning and not also at the end. But we start in the present day. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. And I did love that after this kind of prelude, we go back to the 1820s, but there's no major transition at all. For a second, you're not sure that you're not in the exact same space and these characters share the same time and place. And I love the implication that there is a certain inevitability to the sweep of history, to the story of these two characters. I think that's there inherently as more information does get dispensed to us. We know where this is going. Mm -hmm. And rather than that spoiling anything, it just makes it even more suspenseful. Absolutely. And it also suggests that this land, 
that we're talking so much about and that this character we meet at the beginning played by Aaliyah Shawkat, what she's digging into, she's digging into this ground. It tells you what this whole region, what this territory was founded on, yeah, right? What this country was founded on, this idea that the legacy of it mm-hmm. is is sacrifice and it's struggles. And in this case, it's literally in the soil. It's really poignant too, though, because we will then go on to see a story we're going to become deeply invested in and it shows you that it's a story that's been forgotten by time yeah. and covered over yep. by more soil and silt and whatever else is on the riverbed. I also like the touch that it's not as if she romanticizes nature when we shift to the past. That riverside looks pretty much the same for, for all of the development that has gone on. And this is not to, you know, to kind of pretend that right. nature hasn't been despoiled in the 200 years since, but I do like that she just shifts, as you said, the, the riverfront looks pretty much the same yeah, and then even, as it does now. If I remember correctly, I noticed that as we open on a large ship mm-hmm. carrying a bunch of containers going slowly across the frame, when we go back to the past, it's still boats bringing things right. across the water. They're different sizes. They're made of different materials. Some of this stuff never changes as perhaps America never really changes. On that note, We will wrap up this conversation about Kelly Reichert's First Cow, a movie obviously we're both pretty enthusiastic about. It is out in limited release right now. I believe it's going to expand to more screens next weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. I will say, Josh, based on your reference earlier to that previous look ahead to the year. It was last year thinking First Cow might be your movie of the year. I thought you would force me to ponder whether or not First Cow might just be standing at number one at the end of the year. And it's way early and we have so many movies to see, but I think it's going to be in the mix. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're right. I I don't know how many 20, 20 films I've seen so far uh, under 10. So it's number one right now out of seven. (laughs) It's standing pretty well. All right, onward we go. We'll have a quick review of Disney Pixar's latest when we come back, plus the Sweet 16 of Film Spotting Madness, otherwise known as the Goodbye Lewin Davis edition. Stay with us. Betty Davis there just not putting up with any of our nonsense. Yeah, I mean, looking I forward to more. Felt bad about only seeing a couple of her films, but that was pretty harsh. That's Davis in 1934's Of Human Bondage. Davis is the subject of our next film spotting marathon. I'm not sure we mentioned this on the show previously. We might be springing it on a few people, though 
it has been on our marathons page over at filmspotting.net for at least a month or two. We've yeah. known that this was going to be our first project this year, fill in some blanks when it comes to Betty Davis. So you're not going to see All About Eve in the marathon as much as I'd love to revisit it. There are a few others that we're familiar with, but we are going to embark on a four-film Betty Davis marathon starting next week with Of Human Bondage. That's directed by John Cromwell from 1934. Josh, we're going to go then to 38. William Wyler, of course, pretty famous for his collaborations, I think, on three films with Davis, Jezebel. Then 1940, or... We could go to 1939 because there's two we've been considering. We've got another one from Weiler, The Letter, and we've got Edmund Golding's Dark Victory. Depending on who you ask, well, that's the problem. Yeah. You could go either way. And I'm not sure which way I want to go, but I suppose I'll throw out here on air production meeting. I'm leaning towards Dark Victory because we've got another Weiler in there. And Golding's one of these directors who no one really knows. I don't feel like I know him at all. And yet, if you look at his list of titles, made a lot of prominent movies in this time period. So that's where I'm leaning. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, why double up on a director in a marathon about an actress if you don't have to? So yeah, we'll close it out then with 1942's Now Voyager. And we are considering for our film spotting family members over on Patreon, a bonus episode in April or May, where we will discuss whatever happened to baby Jane, maybe have a guest on for that one, we hope. Yeah, kind of the perfect guest. So we're not going to name any names until we nail that down. Uh, but this is this is one of the Betty Davis films I have seen relatively recently. And I still feel like it kind of has to be part okay. of a marathon, part of her legacy at least. So yeah, hopefully that'll work out. We are going to tie into this discussion of, of human bondage with a top five that we already know how we're going to structure it or how we're going to approach it. It is going to be five films, of course. It is a top five, but we're going to look at the 1930s. And what we're going to do is not offer you the definitive five best films of the 1930s, though I think we've both been doing some prep and there's a very good chance that those five movies that we're going to pick could be considered or would yeah. come close to being considered among yeah, the that's best probably true. of the 1930s. We're going to give you a 1930s starter pack. There are enough great films, certainly from that period. There are enough great films from that period we have seen. We feel like we can give everyone, if they're unfamiliar, maybe even a little daunted by the thought of diving into those films, we're going to give you five films each that would give you the best sense of the decade. Mm -hmm. And maybe I suppose to really break it down, we're going to give you simply what we think are the best films from some different genres yeah. that the 1930s covered. Yeah, try to provide a portrait of the decade in film. And what makes this idea especially work for the 30s is you look at it and you've got great musicals going on. You've got great horror movies. Um, you have gangster films. Screwball you have comedies. Screwball comedies. You have the Marx Brothers. Yeah. Charlie Chaplin, um, you, you have Errol Flynn doing some of his best work. So even by narrowing it down this way, I've tried to put together a preliminary list and I've got basically 10 yeah. that, you know, should be in that top five. Of so course. this is going to be tough. Yeah. If you want to make mention of a film that we either need to try to squeeze in, maybe we haven't seen it or one you want to make sure we don't overlook. 
you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Tell us what might be on your 1930s starter pack. We also wanted to take a moment on this show to acknowledge the passing last weekend of Max von Sydow, 90 years old. Not that it matters, certainly looking at his legacy, but nominated for two Oscars, Best Actor in 1989's Pell the Conqueror, and then I'd completely forgotten about this, but 2012 Best Supporting Actor for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. He does have one more film that is currently in post-production. It's called Echoes of the Past. He stars as an acclaimed Greek writer reflecting on his past, specifically a 1943 Nazi massacre in Greece. A lot of great remembrances about Von Sydow came out in the wake of his passing. I I saw one Justin Chang wrote for the LA Times, Mm -hmm. which is worth checking out. And Mark Harris also shared this on Twitter. You could create at least three Max Von Sydow film festivals. Bergman Von Sydow, Paycheck Vensido and Miscellaneous Vensido, and they'd all be full of good movies and all enriched by his committed, moving, and often witty work. He was a category of one, RIP. So, to give you a sense of some of those films that would fit those different film festivals that would be programmed at those festivals, you've got Bergman, The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, very small role in that film, Winter Light, Hour of the Wolf, Through a Glass Darkly, and the Virgin Spring. I've seen all of those except for Hour of the Wolf. And if you go back way back to 2007 here on the show, Maddie and I did a Bergman marathon and we did our awards, of course, as we do at the end of those marathons. We called them the Svens. And we had a category that was best performance by Max von Sydow because he was in so many of them. I gave it to Winter Light. And this is a movie that listeners may recall coming up a lot, certainly on this show, in relation to Paul Schrader's First Reformed, a movie that draws from a lot of influences, including Ozu and Dreyer and Brisson. He talked about that all here in an interview on the show with us. But I would say most definitively, Winter Light. Winter Light is really the touchstone for Schrader and First Reform. And if you know First Reform fairly well, Von Sydow plays in Winter Light, the character who would be the guy that's really the person who incites the crisis for Ethan Hawke's character, the guy who comes in and says there's no hope anymore in the world. In First Reformed, it's about the environment and how we're destroying it. In Winter Light, it's the threat of nuclear war that causes Gunnar Bjornstrand's priest to succumb to his crisis. So a lot of great stuff there in Bergman collaborating with Von Sydow. Of course, The Seventh Seal, we brushed through it quickly, but that image of him playing chess with death is maybe the Bergman image. Yeah, that's the one you saw popping up on Twitter after the news broke. If you want to try to categorize that paycheck um, film festival that Mark Harris was talking about, maybe you'd think of something like Flash Gordon. He was also in Minority Report, Shutter Island. I mean, both for paycheck roles, really good films. Yeah. Uh, the Force Awakens as well. Remember him showing up at the beginning of that. Dune 84. So we'll see him later we'll this get year. a chance. And then also Conan the Barbarian, Judge Dredd, The Exorcist 2, Strange Brew, and Ice Pirates. Yeah. Forgot about him in Ice Pirates. I used to dig that film. How about the miscellaneous category? Well, maybe you would throw The Exorcist in there as Father Marin, Hannah and Her Sisters, and The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. He has a brief scene, right? Is it... One It's been a while since I've seen that Maybe only one scene, but it is a key scene and fairly long, maybe five or six minutes. I'll just say if I'm going to any of these festivals, it's the miscellaneous. I don't know what other movies we'd throw in there, but you're talking about in The Exorcist and Hannah and Her Sisters. 
two of my favorite films of all time. And he, of course, has very memorable roles in one as Father Marin, in Hannah as Frederick, who's the really pretentious partner of Barbara Hershey's character in that movie. I do also have great affection for The Diving Bell and The Butterfly made my top 10 of its year. And yeah, there's a key scene in it where Matthew Almerich, who is now thinking back on his life, he is in that hospital bed, can't move really any part of his body. And he's thinking back to when his father, played by Von Sydow, is infirmed and can't care for himself as well as he used to. And we see Amorek shave him. And it's a very tender scene done between two characters who clearly have a lot of history and a lot of baggage. And some real tenderness does come out over the course of it. And I do love a key line. I rewatched it in preparation for this show. And there's a great line that I feel like sums up Von Sydow so perfectly after the shave, perfect shave. He looks in the mirror and he says, God, they don't make them like me anymore. And that really sums <laughs> well, it up. That goes back to Harris's comment. He was a category of one. Yeah. Another quality. The interesting thing about him is he was almost always resonated the most as someone from the vast past or the uncertain future. Yeah. You know, he was, I mean, of course, something like Hannah and her sisters, he, he's excellent, but he had that qua- that out of time quality. About yeah. Him. And I think he had that in Hannah and her sisters as well. So rest in peace, Max von Sydow. Over at filmspotting.net, if you click on events, you can find information about advanced screenings. We do have some passes currently to give away to The Banker with Anthony Mackie and Samuel L. Jackson. That screening is on Thursday the 19th here in Chicago. If you want to see it for free and see it in advance of its release, that's also where you will find information about our live shows. And yes, as of right now, we are certainly planning to go through with these live shows. We're excited about it. And we hope to see many listeners on Saturday, May 16th in LA. As of this taping, tickets aren't available, but they will be available soon. Tickets are available for our Friday, June 19th show in Brooklyn. If you want more details on either of those shows, again, go to filmspotting.net slash events. Unfortunately, we did have to take a different event off that page. Just heard today before coming to record that they have decided to cancel the conference on world affairs. This was at the University of Colorado Boulder, where I was going to be doing the Ebert Interruptus on Cleo from 5 to 7. So, yes, with uh, COVID-19 concerns and precautions, they've canceled that whole event which unfortunately means I don't get to spend four days with Cleo and uh, all the great people who usually come out to that. So hopefully things uh, will start turning around, improving, and we'll be back at Ebert Interruptus next year. That's a real bummer. I feel for you and feel for everyone who doesn't get to participate in that. The only good part of that is it's better for the film spotting credit card that you won't be buying a lot of drinks at a That's meetup. true. We, it, the, the credit card takes a hit at that annual meetup. That's for sure. Every two weeks on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you will find a new movie pairing, a recent release, and a classic. Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky are your hosts. This week, they've got what they're calling their Believe It or Not pairing, part one. You referenced the movie during our discussion last week of The Invisible Man. They're pairing that new movie starring Elizabeth Moss with Gaslight, obviously a perfect combination. Yeah, one of those just sitting there right for them. I can't wait to listen to that. I've got it queued up for the ride home. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts or you can head over to nextpictureshow.net. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. 
This is Sparta! It is film spotting madness time. We started with 64, and just like that, we're down to 16. The culling always happens so quickly. I know. I mean, all the preparation you and Sam put into this, all the excitement, all the agonizing, and then like that, there's only 16 movies left. It's our annual bracket-style tournament, 64 films from the 2010s this year, only one of them can reign supreme. Voting in the Sweet 16 round of this year's Madness kicked off earlier this week. Remember, new rounds open every Monday. So the last round voting stops at 11 a.m. By noon, the winners are up and the madness starts again. That's all at filmspotting.net slash madness. Before we get into those Sweet 16 matchups, we, of course, have to reveal the results of round two. Again, over 3,500 Josh votes cast in most of these. And we had some blowouts once again. Yeah, Parasite really took it to marriage story. I figured Parasite would win, but not by 85 to 15%. That's something. Ex Machina took out John Wick. Yeah. I mean, we thought John Wick was really going to maybe make a run after its initial win. Not but close. here, Ex Machina, 81 to 19%. Ex Machina, actually one of the lower seeds to advance. You guys had it seeded 25th. That's right. All right. The Master won over Dogtooth, 75 to 25%. And the Tree of Life took out Personal Shopper, also 75 to 25%. So we've heard the blowouts. What about some of the upsets? Under the Skin versus the Act of Killing. Under the Skin, technically the lower seed, but the outcome, not really a surprise. It did win 61 to 39% over Joshua Oppenheimer's documentary. Moonrise Kingdom, Josh. Wes Anderson against the Wolf of Wall Street. The Wolf of Wall Street was the higher seed in the tournament. Moonrise actually was 45th. Now, in fairness to myself and Sam, Grand Budapest Hotel, I think, was a top 10 seed. So we put Moonrise a little further down the list, but it took out the Wolf of Wall Street pretty decisively, 55 to 45. That does my heart good. This does not do my heart good. In fact, this, this breaks my heart. Arrival versus Inside... Lewin Davis. Lewin Davis, our number seven seed. Would anyone have questioned that? No. Putting it in the top ten? Possibly would have said maybe it's too low. Maybe. Arrival, seated 39th. Denis Villeneuve's film with the shocking upset over the cones, 53 to 47. Lewin Davis is out. This is really shocking. banished to the underworld. We talked at one point about understanding that there is this personal attachment to Arrival, this deep groundswell of love for that movie, I didn't know it was this widespread to take out the Coens. I'm shocked. Lewin Davis is the highest seed to lose in the tournament. Seven, as we said. Carol, the eight seed, lost in the first round, memorably, to the Baba Yaga. (laughs) The Coens, so they won our 90s madness, Fargo, best film in the 90s, according to Film Spotting listeners, Fargo. Yes. They took third place last year in the best of the 2000s with No Country, for old men. And back in 2016, when we did our director's tournament for Film Spotting Madness, they won it all. And yet somehow, I don't know if all of our listeners just in the past two years have have gone away and all new listeners well, have replaced this is them. what I'm wondering. Or is there, uh, is the Cohen stock starting to slide? How could that happen? I can't imagine. But they're out. They're out completely now from this year's tournament. And I'm just not going to dwell on it anymore, Josh, because I might start crying on air and I don't want to do that. We do close the results with our closest matchup of round two. And we talked about it last week. This is a matchup that probably shouldn't have happened. The people who made the bracket, I don't know who those idiots are. 
They could have done a much better job. Lady Bird and the Grand Budapest Hotel should have been facing off in the Sweet 16, maybe even the Elite Eight. Somehow, they faced each other in round two. 3,600 votes, Josh. And it was so close. What was the margin of victory? 18 votes. 18. So if you think your vote doesn't count. Yeah. If you thought this matchup is too hard, I don't want to make a choice, I don't want to weigh in, and now you're feeling bad because your preferred choice may have lost, well, you should have voted. It's that close. 50.83% to 49.62%. 18 votes, but winning with those 18 votes. Lady Bird. How about that? Greta Gerwig taking Wes Anderson and Rafe Fiennes out. Of course, I do feel good about that. My bracket maybe doesn't feel so good about it, but I'm a big Ladybird guy, so go listeners. Yeah, you're t- you're torn in that way. That happens with madness. Um, I Moonrise is still in there, so I feel okay about that. And and actually, Grand Budapest, you know, I did end up voting for it, but this was a difficult one for me too. So either way, I would have been happy. Okay, so we can now go through these pretty quickly because we are down to the Sweet 16. That means there are only eight. Matchups, And I thought we would have a little fun here instead of kind of alternating through our toughest. Maybe I'll give you my categories. You see where you disagree with me, Josh. Okay. So here are the four matchups I thought were relatively easy. It doesn't mean I don't love all of these films. In fact, I do love all eight of these films, but I had clear victors. So the first one is Mad Max Fury Road versus Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Easy. You're with me, of course. You called Mad Max your number one film of the decade. Yes. Hollywood didn't make your top 10. No, I think it was 12. Okay. The Tree of Life versus Under the Skin. Both were in my top 10. Actually, was it top 11 films of the decade? I think Under the Skin was just yeah, outside I think you had it at 11. the top 10. But I had Tree of Life at three. You had it at two. Yeah, another so easy, that's easy one. Okay. Her mm-hmm. versus Parasite. Last year's Parasite. I love Her, but... Parasite was my number eight film of the decade. That's my winner. Yeah. This one gives me pause, but it's Parasite. Now, you've mentioned a couple times Moonrise Kingdom. It advances to the social network. Mm. I feel like every week, this is the fourth time now, I've had to point out how much it pains me to vote against Moonrise Mm -hmm. Kingdom. You're going to think that I don't actually like the movie at all. It's starting to sound like that. I keep saying it should lose, but the social network did make my top 20 of the decade. So- I'm giving it the edge. I'm guessing you're going to go the other way. It's easy for me because it's Moonrise Kingdom. Okay, we get to the two then that I think were more challenging, but actually weren't necessarily the actual toughest. I think this one is going to tear a lot of listeners, or at least I hoped it would. The Master, my number two film of the decade versus Lady Bird, my number five film of the decade. And I say it's not actually that hard only because I had already gone through that heartache of having to rank them for that top 20 films of the decade. Sure. I can't go back on that. I have my winner. As much as I love Lady Bird, as much as I would love to see that film and Greta Gerwig advance, I did rank The Master higher. The Master gets my vote here. This falls into the toughest category for me because uh, these, neither of these were in my top 20. Love them both, however, and it's a pairing I don't even know how to begin to think about putting them together. They're just so entirely different films, right. different filmmakers. So this is in the toughest category for me. And, and I, I'm not deciding. You're not deciding. I, I love to. it. I don't have to. <laughs> okay. This is different from last year when I would just impulsively make my votes. Yeah, I love it. You're yeah. paralyzed by the master versus Ladybird. That's what madness is supposed to do. Another one I'm calling just challenging. 
Moonlight versus Boyhood. Again, though, Moonlight didn't quite make my top 10, considered in my top 30 from the decade. Boyhood did make my top 10 at number seven. So I'm going Linklater. You're going to go the other direction. Yep. Same scenario, just opposite way for me. Boyhood was not on my top 20, but I had, I think Moonlight was number three of the decade for me. That sounds right. Okay. So then the two for me that were the actual toughest, all four of these films I'm going to mention were outside my top 10. I didn't really have to wrestle with exactly where they fell, though all four of them were considered by me for my top 20 films of the decade. And that's why this is so hard. Paul Thomas Anderson, he's got the master in, in the Sweet 16, Phantom Thread also making the Sweet 16, but going up against Ex Machina, a movie you and I had at the top of our list of the best films of the year it came out. It did make your top 20. I think it was my number 11. I think it was 11 just outside. I'm trying to remember now because I think I have Phantom Thread ranked lower. Yeah, you do. Oh, you that do. doesn't sound right. See, isn't that funny how that works? That does you, not sound right. You were sitting down preparing for your list. It felt right two weeks ago yeah. to put Phantom Thread lower. And somehow when you have to make the vote, when you actually have to think about clicking the button that you know is putting Phantom Thread in the incinerator That's forever. The problem. That's the problem because I think I spoke to Phantom Thread's rewatchability, yeah. which I think is probably greater than Ex Machina. So you're going against your ranking? Yes. You're voting Phantom I'm Thread. Rend- I'm rendering my top... 20 of the 2010s list points. Irrelevant. There <laughs> well, we go. We knew that <laughs> for both of us. This is why we call it madness. Finally, one that will be definitely easy for you. This has got to be in the easiest category. Yes. Get Out yeah. versus Arrival. Yeah, it's Get Out for me. I love both films and both fall into that category of movies I want to revisit again and again. If I'm picking right now just between which movie I want to throw in the DVD player and reconsider... It is a rifle. So I think I'm going with the upset here. And hmm. I'm picking a rival. I don't know that it's going to win. I don't know that it's Cinderella's story is going to continue. But if I'm voting get out or a rival, I'm giving it to a rival. I think it actually has a shot. Looking at it, what it's already gone through, I think it could happen. You can vote. We hope you will vote. You can't predict anymore, of course. We're now in the Sweet 16, but you can go to filmspotting.net slash madness again every Monday at noon. The next round starts. So this Monday, you can see which movies will make it to the Elite Eight. And we get some great comments. And it's one of our regrets this time that we haven't been able to devote as much attention to the great comments that we get. Maybe we can save them up for another episode. But I did want to point out just a quick procedural thing because I got a couple of comments this year from people, Josh, saying, I don't know how to leave a comment or I don't know how to go back into the poll and leave a comment. And I love our listeners. They're so honest and forthright. They figured out that if you click the vote again, if you Mm -hmm. make a choice again, it will bring up the ability to click on comments right. and then you can leave the comment. But you'd be voting twice. But you'd be voting no one, twice. No one would do that. And even though we're a Chicago-based show, <laughs> that seems improper <laughs> to our listeners. That's how seriously they take it. And I'm glad. That's I'm how seriously we take it. Yes. Here's the thing, though. We've got some things set on the back end, very tricky. Once you vote, that's locked in your vote and you can't vote again. So the fact that you click, let's say, for get out a second time Aha. and click vote... It's not actually registering your vote. It's, it's just going to say to you, you access exactly. To the it's going to say to you, thank you. We've already registered your vote. Ooh, and we'll be reporting you. That's it. To Madness Headquarters. <laughs> That's it. We're going to track you down. It's like Minority <laughs> Report or something. But no, just do that. If you want to go back in and leave a comment, you forgot or you thought of something pithy to say later, just vote again. 
and go in and click comments. There you go. Filmspotting.net slash madness is where all the fun happens. Now it's time to look at the prediction leaderboard. Yes. We mentioned it last week. 678 film spotting listeners submitted brackets. <laughs> and after round two, we've got a new name at the top. It was Mark Chaplin. Pretty good. He's only dropped to fourth place. Not bad at all. No, but our new leader is Justin Tafe. He's in Santa Monica, California. He named his bracket really want stories we tell to knock off Tree of Life. I love that sentiment <laughs> as much as I love Tree of Life. Didn't happen, no. obviously, there. Justin. Justin managed to pick all 16 second-round matchups. Look at that. 16 for 16. Not well bad. done, Justin. And he wrote to us. He's a longtime listener going back to 2008, a former Massacre Theater winner. I also think we did talk about a movie he selected for our listener's choice way back on an After Hours episode. That was before your time, Josh. But Justin wrote in, the secret to my round two success is that I did no research, knocked out my bracket in under two <laughs> minutes, and went with my heart over my head on what I had as coin flip matchups, e.g. Arrival over Lewin Davis. Assume I'll probably go about two for eight in the Sweet 16. Considering you're employing the Josh Larson strategy, yeah. yes, Justin, it's not looking good for you. Well, so far, it's paying off for you as well, yeah, Josh. See, we we're go, both. Yeah, <laughs> it's making it work this time. We're going to our leaderboard. Me, you, Sam, compete against each other, along with founding father of Film Spotting Madness, Mike Merrigan in Dover, New Hampshire. Let's see how we did after round two. So I am in first. Was I in first last round as well? I think I was. You right? Were. I yes, was. you okay, were. I have dropped a little bit though, because now you I'm were like thirty first or something. Yeah, now it's now 31st. I'm thirty first place i got 13 out of 16 right um here's where i start getting confused i don't i don't know what all this means there's 174 possible points yeah, remaining looking at all your so picks that could still advance if i get them all right if you got them all right i get 174 points yeah 174 more points okay got it and let's see sam's notes here i have six of the elite eight left and all four of my final four they're alive so that sounds pretty good not as true for sam unfortunately mm, sam is in 69th place he got 12 out of 16 right which means he has 152 points remaining he only has five of his elite eight predictions left and he only has two of his final four so yeah that's Ouch. that's rough adam you are in third place among the four of us 117th place among all listener predictions. You got 13 out of 16 right. You have 175 One more than points you. remaining. See, mm -hmm. this is where I'm confused. I, I, well, let's see here. Seven of your elite eight are left. Okay, so that makes sense. I only have six. And you also have all four of yeah. your final It four. just means the ones I got wrong don't have a chance of moving on got anyway. It. Okay. Yeah. Mike Merrigan. Founder of Film Spotting Madness, listener, is in fourth place. I'm sorry, Mike. You're in 225th place among all listeners. You got 12 out of 16 right in this second round. You have 176 points remaining. Seven of your Elite Eight are left and all four of your final four. So you may recall, Josh, yes. that I think it was last week on the show, I declared Sam DOA. Yeah, out. Done. Said he was done. Mm-hmm. And being done is really all that matters. Finishing last in this yes. tournament. There's no prize for no, winning. There's just only, bragging rights. We only punish. You only get punished if you lose. You got to watch an Adam Sandler Netflix movie. That was me last year. It was you, I think, every year before that. I said Sam was done, and the math seemed to add up, right? Because he only has five of his Elite Eight left, and I knew that he was only going to have two of his final four left. Surely his bracket is busted. Yes. Surely, I say. Yes. Except... 
I can't give it away because, again, I have access to the special sauce. Mm -hmm. I can see the calculations. I can see how some of the votes are going in early voting so far. And I'm just going to say, Josh, that you picked the master to win it all. Yes. It's going to be close. You you may not pull it off. What you're telling me is Sam has a path. Sam has a path. He picked Mad Max Fury Road to win it all. He has a path to not lose. He has a path to not lose. I don't think there's any way Sam is going to win. Got it. But there is a world where he doesn't lose. And in fact, there's a world where fourth place, actually 225th place, Mike Merrigan wins it all. Because, Josh, if surprises continue to play out and upsets continue to happen, if you look at the final four that I chose, you, Sam, there's some combination of I think Parasite might be in all three or at least two of them, Mad Max Fury Road, The Master. If there are upsets and say Fury Road goes down or The Master goes down this round, Mike Merrigan doesn't have those movies in his final four. And he does have Get Out versus, I think, The Social Network. He may also have Fury Road in the final four, Mm -hmm. but he does have Get Out beating everybody, reigning supreme over The Social Network. And if somehow those movies do make it all the way to the championship, Mike Merrigan could win it all. But all that really matters is he might not finish dead last. It could be you. It could be Sam. For all I know, it could be me. I haven't done enough of the math. Well, it sounds like you've done a lot of work. <laughs> Too much work. <laughs> I would think you'd have a little and better idea. after all idea. that work, I still didn't know. <laughs> you still don't know. I need another oh round. Goodness. I need to simplify this, it. This is why I don't like math. Surely there are some MIT people out there. <laughs> they can crunch these numbers and run some predictions. Can you help us out? We could use it. We could. Feedback at filmspotting.net is the email. Filmspotting.net slash madness, of course, the URL where all this happens. In early voting, we will say that none are really that close, but there is at least one upset in the making. Sorry, Josh. Sweet 16 voting is open until Mm. Monday, March 16th at 11 a.m. If somehow you're not getting enough film spotting madness, we tried something new this year. Our film spotting family members over on Patreon, they have the fit to reckon with. The film spotting invitation tournament, just like the NCAA has another tournament for the 32 kind of also rands, if you will, we made up a 32 film bracket of the films that were left out of Film Spotting Madness this year. Because there was a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth yes. when the films that were in it were revealed. Immediately, people don't see one of their favorite titles mm-hmm. of the decade, and they want to know why. They want reasons. They want answers. Well, now... They get a whole nother tournament. We're trying to throw you guys a bone, but also make ourselves feel better. It was hard. We left out movies like Call Me By Your Name, My Beloved Little Women, My Beloved The Handmaiden. Those movies are in the 32 film film spotting invitation tournament. We're doing a matchup a day over on the Patreon page, which means the fit should wind up actually about the same time as film spotting madness proper. And we did as of this taping, we posted the first matchup. One a day, every day at 10 a.m. Again, only for family members. It's an exclusive benefit to our family members. Call Me By Your Name versus The Handmaiden. And for this one, we decided to unify the films in round one by some kind of theme. Mm -hmm. Call Me By Your Name and The Handmaiden, both under the umbrella of The Visitor. Okay. I love The Handmaiden. I like Call Me By Your Name quite a bit, too. But this was an easy one for me to go with the Park Chan-wook film. Most people who filled out their prediction bracket, something like 170 in this tournament, had Call Me By Your Name going quite far. In fact, maybe winning it all. And I'm here to tell you. That's not happening? It's going down. That shocks me. The Handmaiden is winning this matchup. I don't know how far it's going to go, 
but it's going to advance. That's a huge surprise. It is. Other benefits of being a film spotting patron. Add free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed. You get to add that directly to whatever pod device you use. Early downloads, live presale discounts, merch discounts, and monthly bonus episodes. The next monthly bonus episode is going to be really interesting. It is a We Were Wrong Once review, re-review of 2005 Sin City. So this is a review that you did with producer Sam Van Halgren when he was co-hosting. And... Okay, you loved it. Sam did not like it. Very much. And so... Did not like it. <laughs> we're going to revisit that. You guys are going to watch it. Sam's going to join us. Yes. Um, I'll be there as well. And I got to say, I rewatched Sin City today. Uh, wow, doing your homework early. Uh, some shifting has happened. Come on. Some sh- Well, I'll just, it's going to be an interesting you conversation. You were telling me that you were going to be there for me. You were going to be my support. <sighs> I might, I mean, I might still be there to support certain things, but that movie looks a little different 15 years later. I'm just going to say that. I imagine that could be true. <laughs> and that's why I think I said last week, I really didn't want to revisit it. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. That bonus episode again for film spotting family members at Patreon will be coming out Monday, the 23rd. And I'll just say, if you're not that familiar with how this all works and you hadn't taken the plunge yet and supported us on Patreon and you're thinking, well, I missed out on the Beverly Hills Cop review, their extra 8 from 84 review, or some of the other things they've talked about, including the Film Spotting Invitation Tournament. It's available to you. Everything that we've posted, all those exclusives are available to you the moment you decide to be a family member on Patreon. We appreciate your support. Patreon.com slash filmspotting is the address. Times of old, the world was full of wonder and magic. But times change. I'm a mighty warrior! Morning, Mom! Hey, birthday boy! By the laws of yore, I must dub thee a man today. Kneel before me. That's okay. I have a gift from your dad. He just said to give you this when you were both over 16. No way! It's a wizard staff. Dad was a wizard! What? Your dad was an accountant. This spell brings him back. For one whole day, Dad will be back! What? Back? Like, back to life? That's not possible. It is with this. I'm gonna meet Dad. We're going to close out this show with some thoughts on the latest from Pixar, their 22nd feature film. You heard a little bit from the trailer there for Onward, a movie that is set in a suburban fantasy world. Chris Pratt and Tom Holland voice two brothers named Ian and Barley who managed to, let's just say, through some wizardry, revive their father who passed away something like 16 years ago back yeah, when before Ian, Ian was, was just a, a young boy. I think before he was actually born. Yeah. yeah while yeah. while his mom was pregnant with him. And they've got the lower half of his body. Yes. Half the spell worked. That's it. Okay. Literally half yeah, the so, spell worked. So they have to go in search of things they need to complete the spell. To complete the spell. Well said. And as this is a show that likes to do a lot of lists, maybe it makes sense to start off this brief discussion with a list because our friend Matt Singer, formerly of Film Spotting SVU, ranked all 22 Pixar films. He had Onward at 13. And based on a tweet you shared earlier this week, Josh, you had it at 14th. I've got it actually at 15th on my list. So 13, 14, 15. Does this mean then to someone listening that Onward must be a lackluster Pixar film, or does it speak to the quality of their body of work 
that it's that low. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I was trying to point out is um, that this is not a backhanded compliment to rank it in the range that all three of us have it. Uh, Just for reference, Pixar has 22 films. So, yeah, it's in the middle of the pack. And I think that's very accurate for the output that we've gotten from the animation studio. This is well above average family animated film in terms of its design and visuals in story two, I think. Um, This world they've created of a suburban fantasy world. So it used to be a more fantastical place, but the conveniences of technology have been adopted to a point where fairies, they just take airplanes to fly because why bother flying yourself if a plane will do it for you? So there's a little like Simpson-esque wit there skewering um, how we've come to rely on technology. There's a lot of Dungeons and Dragons stuff. It's clever in the way you expect Pixar to be, but maybe not mind-blowingly inventive like something like Inside Out, which makes you rethink consciousness. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a high bar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what I will say about Onward, and if it's being discussed as a middling effort in its defense, I think it really builds to one of those classic, emotionally cathartic, moving climaxes that is not manipulative. I think there's some delicate choices, and without giving anything away, that they make there regarding the potential reunion with the father Mm -hmm. regarding the emphasis on the brother relationship, which kind of we didn't realize the movie is really about until it becomes about. I think that this finale is among one of Pixar's strongest, actually. What comes before is maybe more what we've, you know, something we're maybe a little more used to. It's also a great action finale. While all that emotional Mm -hmm. stuff is going on, there's a fantastic dragon that appears. Um, So yeah, there's a lot to like about Onward. Is it Finding Nemo? Is it Ratatouille? Is it Toy Story? (laughs) Yeah, no, but few films are. Yeah, I hate to say great job on that premise, Pixar, but they did it again as far as coming up with a really compelling one here. If you think about movies like Inside Out and WALL-E and Toy Story and Up, these are movies that really tap into fundamental questions about our humanity. And here they have pulled that off with Onward. This question, this exploration of the idea of what if you could spend one more day with a parent or any loved one who you have lost. And I do think they managed to explore that in a way that isn't manipulative. Their heart always does seem to be in the right place to me. But even more than that, I think you mentioned this in terms of convenience, this central idea that everyday life for these people has kind of lost some of its magic and Mm -hmm. they've chosen lives of convenience and self-gratification. I think that's something we can all relate to. And the movie reminding us to take moments to think about the magic in the world is never a bad thing. And you're right. I think it builds to a very satisfying, emotional climax. I think that finale is pretty thrilling. I think maybe I didn't react quite as strongly as you did to it or quite as strongly as Pixar hoped I would just based on that journey there only because it's an escalation of crises and new characters that is for me relentless and a little bit overwhelming. And I'm not sure it's really a good thing or a bad thing to say about the movie that maybe the aspect I appreciated most before that finale was it's nods to Indiana Jones and the last crusade. It pulls a lot from it pulls a lot from that film. And maybe I'm just happy (laughs) that I can feel like a good cinephile dad sitting there with all four of my children and They're down the road for me a little bit, but there's a key moment where the movie is clearly ripping Mm -hmm. off Indiana Jones. There's multiple moments. They're taking from Last Crusade, also a movie about a father and son reunion, of course, Connery and Harrison Ford. And Sophie turns to Holden and says something like, 
it's Jehovah, you idiots. <laughs> and, and Holden says to her, oh, so I'm not the only one, right? They were all locked in because they love Last Crusade as much as I do. So that might have been my favorite part of it. Yeah, that's that is fun. And you're I can see what you mean. There's an escalation of challenges. I mean, it's a quest movie, right? It's, it's yes. modeled. At, that's part of the in joke in a way is it's modeled after Dungeons and Dragons style. Right. Role playing quest. And some of those set pieces, I agree, do work better than others. A little I did, tedious. And, and, and I think, too, Josh, I'll just say that at the expense of, unfortunately, vocal performances and characters that like Octavia Spencer plays and Julie Louis-Dreyfus as the mom, who then are largely wasted because we only get to spend so much time with them before we got to get back to that crisis. But I would actually say I, that's one thing I liked, that they would have been wasted if we just met them in each of their scenes, but they actually have the two of them pair up and follow the boys. And I was so grateful for that because their dynamic is really strong. Octavia Spencer plays this fantasy creature, Manticore. the Manticore, who, who in this new world is just running a theme restaurant based on her past exploits right. and kind of comes back into her own battle glory. And, and I think what you're what you're saying that is because their scenes were so good, we wanted more of yeah, them. Yeah, I think perhaps. that's part of it. But also, in retrospect, the more I thought about their scenes and exchanges, I felt like they didn't tie in as much. I see the resonance, but they didn't tie in as much to some of the larger themes of the actual story. Instead, I see them how they serve the plot, how they need to be there, and those character traits and character histories need to be in place so they can bail out <laughs> characters at other points in the movie. <gasps> Quick! That's the manticore. Oh, great and powerful manticore. Whoa, sir, you're right in the hot zone. You're late, Adolphus. I understand there's traffic. You need to plan for that. Well, maybe your mother should get her own car. Your fearlessness? My brother and I seek a map to a phoenix gem. Oh, uh, well, you've come to the right tavern. I have the parchment you desire right here. Oh, that's a children's menu. Isn't that fun? They're all based on my old maps. So just give me um, some context for your ranking. You're putting it at the middle of the pack. What do you yeah. have around Onward? Like what, what other films are you saying this is kind of in the same tier as, if you look at it that way? Yeah, with it at 15, obviously I would put it in that 11 to 15. And right next to it, here's where I am heretical. I go way off the chart compared to most Pixar fans, most cinephiles i've got ratatouille just ahead of it at 14 Ooh, ouch for me a mostly overrated pixar film and we'll talk about singer in a second he kind of agrees with me i've got your beloved brave ahead of it at 13 mm. monsters inc at 12 and toy story 4 a movie i know you have much lower i've got it at 11 no but that's interesting i would put toy story 4 in the same tier okay as onward because yeah. i have onward 14 toy story 4 15 just ahead of onward is Coco. Um, and then Toy Story, here's where I'm a little off, Toy Story 2, which people love. I've got it further back. It's at 12. So it's right along, alongside that group. Yeah. I think I think that feels about right. Now, have you seen all 22? Because I've only seen 19. I acknowledge on my letterbox list that I have not seen Cars 2 or Cars 3 or The Good Dinosaur. And for the record, Matt Singer has those in this order, 21st, 16th, and 22nd. So maybe I'm not missing a whole lot. 16th is Cars 3. He says that's the best of the three Cars films. Oof. But yeah, you're, I only you're know not the first missing one. a lot. I've got Cars 2 as, I have seen them all. Cars 2 at 21, Cars 3 at 22. Just ahead of Cars 2 in the 20 spot is Monsters University, which we should probably point out the director, the writer and director 
of Onward, Dan Scanlon, he previously directed Monsters University. Yeah, and I've got Monsters University second to last at 18. For me, Bugs Life is in that final spot at 19. Also the movie, and I suppose this makes sense based on where it falls in its history, it's the one I saw the longest ago. So have the least concrete thoughts on it. But this is the thing about Pixar. I've got 19 films and A Bug's Life and Monsters University and Finding Dory and then Cars in the bottom four. I don't strongly dislike any of those films. In fact, I kind of like all four of them. So that's that's the thing with Pixar, right, is that the worst it gets is basically I kind of like those. Even Cars 3 is probably the only one I would say I've given a negative review to out of all of those films. Yeah, and I did ask Matt how he would tier them in terms of if there's a clear drop off to movies he doesn't like. And he told me that really it's just those bottom two, Cars 2 and The Good Dinosaur, being the only two that he didn't give at least three stars to. So that's 20 other movies that he is otherwise favorable on. In terms of comparing my list to Matt's, I do love that he's got in his number one slot Inside Out and Finding Nemo at two. So I've got Inside Out a little lower, but Nemo I've got at number one, so very close to Matt. And we actually share four of our top five picks, Inside Out, Nemo, Toy Story 2, and Wall-E. Up is the only one that he's got at three that I have slightly back further in the eighth slot. We will link to Matt's list in our show notes over at filmspotting.net if you want to check it out. I said he kind of agrees with me on Ratatouille. I've got it as low as 14th. He's not that low. He's got it at nine. But I think that is heresy yeah. for a lot of Pixar fans. It's, that's that's a top five, certainly a top 10 for most. It's nonsense. It's number two. But nonsense? I'll, I'll say... Number two. It's number two for me. But we are in agreement. Finding Nemo, it's their best. So Brave is the one that you like or tend to rate a little bit higher than most. Matt Singer, this is the one that you have to be really upset about. Forget Ratatouille at nine. Brave at 19th. Yeah, that, that's also nonsense. At 19th. A lot of nonsense going on. His specific issue, and I haven't seen the movie in a very long time since it came out and we talked about it on the show, but he has a specific issue with the movie, which is he doesn't think that relationship between the daughter and mother character oh. is is handled as well as it should be or complexly as it should be. That's what the movie's all about. He thinks the movie <laughs> rushes through it a little too oh, easily. no. no. <laughs> He's not here, so I'm, I I'm can't, not, not going to. And I can't argue either way because I don't feel that strongly about the film. But again, I mean, for me, one in my top 15. Talk about a powerful climax and how that all comes together. Um, yeah. Too quickly for Matt Singer. We could have a battle royale about Brave. I'm sure lots <laughs> Every, of people. Everyone's dying for that. Would pay for that. We'll put that over on Patreon for <laughs> film spotting family members and see how many signups we get. So again, we'll link to... Matt Singer's list over at filmspotting.net in our show notes. We'll put our Pixar rankings as well. Not that they are by any means the right rankings or definitive. When you look at those top five, really even those top 10, I feel like I could shift them around every day. And in fact, I did shift them. I updated my list back in, what was it, June 19 when Toy Story 4 came out. We talked about that movie on the show you weren't here griffin newman was here from blank check with me and i did watch then all four of the films again and that caused me to shift my rankings around quite a bit i had toy story 2 i think in the second spot now it's toy story 3 toy story 2 bumped back just a little bit to four so of course re-watching them and watching them closely since i was doing my top five toy story moments that does have an impact so onward middle of the pack 
Pixar, and that's still pretty good. That's still good for thing. both of us. It's out in wide release if you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts or our Pixar rankings. And we know you're out there and you do. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also let us know if we're wrong on those lists on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at filmspotting.net in the show archives, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in Film Spotting Madness 2020. It's the best of the 2010s, and we are down to the Sweet 16 matchups. If you're looking for a Film Spotting t-shirt or some other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, visit filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, The Hunt a violent satire from Craig Zobel, the director of Compliance. That is the film that had an opening postponed following shootings last fall. Bloodshot is also out. Just saw the trailer for this the other day. Thanks to nanotechnology, Vin Diesel has become a biotech killing machine. Right now, we don't plan to see either of those films. Uh, No. I'm convinced Bloodshot has arrived Terminator style from the past. Maybe. I mean, isn't this like a 1990-something Vin Diesel movie? It feels like it, right? In limited release, First Cow discussed earlier in the show, recommended highly by both of us. Next week, we will share our top five 1930s films, our starter pack for the best films of that decade, and we'll discuss... A potential contender, 1934's Of Human Bondage, starring Betty Davis. It's the first movie in our Betty Davis marathon. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by U.S. Girls. It comes from the new album, Heavy Light. More information is at usgirls.blogspot.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.